All right, the book of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. What we're going to do tonight is do a real brief review and bring you to the place that, that, uh, that we're heading to, where we're going to start with tonight. As you know, we've been looking at, at a couple of the wars, the end time wars. There are nine end time wars. We started, we started with what is known as the War of Annihilation out of the book of Psalms, Psalm 83 and verse 4. For those of you maybe have, have missed that, and uh, we also have begun, started this on the, the first battle of Gog and, and Magog. Now, the reason I call it the first battle of Gog and Magog, there are two in the Word of God. And I'm going to start right there and even show you some differentiation between the first one that we find out about in Ezekiel 38, 39, and the last one we find out about in the book of Revelation chapter 20. There are two extremely, totally different wars in timing and events in those that are involved and even the outcome, okay? I'm going to show you that, and I'm going to take a lot of time to do that, but I am going to emphasize uh, the significance of that to compare Scripture with Scripture. One of the reasons that we've spent so much time with the War of Annihilation and the Gog-Magog War, Ezekiel 38-39, is to highlight the differentiation between them when we look at the countries in, in the War of Annihilation that are different than the countries that are involved in the first Gog and Magog battle. Everybody with me so far? See, the Word of God gives us indications of how to distinguish between and how to rightly divide between and differentiate between different scriptures and truths. And that's what we want to do is to rightly divide the Word of God. So, let me start, let me start with, with sharing with you a couple of the things that, that are different between the two Gog and Magog battles. All right, again, one of, the, one of the first indications that it's different, we find the first battle of Gog and Magog written about, spoken about in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8 and 39. But wait just a minute. I know that's a prophecy that has to do with the latter days. So just simply finding it in the Old Testament doesn't mean that it could not be related to another war by a similar name at another place, but it's not. Everybody heard me say it's not. Say amen. There are two distinct different wars. One happens before uh, the millennial. The other happens at the end of the millennial. Got me? So anyway, it's not just because they're separated in, in distance. It, it's more than that. But these two events are separated by at least a thousand years. That thousand years, you'll read about it in the book of Revelation chapter 20. I think the word one or, or the phrase 1,000 years is mentioned in that passage, I don't know, five or six times. Been, I, I, I've, I've counted it, I don't know how many times, I just can't remember it. So you can look that and find out too. And that just immediately precedes eternity. That thousand-year reign of Christ, earthly reign of Christ, and we're going to talk about that next. That's where we're going. We're going to look at who populates what is known as the millennium or the thousand-year reign of Christ. Millennium means, or millennial means thousand. That's what it is. And Revelation 20 talks about um, the span of time, the thousand years, and the Old Testament is full of, in the books of Isaiah, the book of, 
uh, of Ezekiel 2 right off the top of my head that deals with this great reign of Christ. It will fulfill the prophecy of the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and the Davidic covenant. So there's a lot that's going on there. But anyway, uh, this battle, in my opinion, and that's where our study is going to go tonight and for the next couple of weeks, this first battle of Gog and Magog will be uh, fought in the latter days. You can see that in Ezekiel 37, or 38 and 39. And to me, my opinion, it will come after the rapture and before Daniel's 70th week or the week of the tribulation. Everybody okay right now? You with me? Everybody follow me. If you're not, I, I want this to be clear. I've done put out a lot of information, so no Look, no shame if, if you're saying, could you explain or say that again? Anybody? Okay, how much of it? All of it? The before, okay. All right, it is my contention, and I'm, I'm going to show you, okay, according to the Word of God as I have understood it, that this first Gog of Magog, uh, will be fought in the latter days. That's, that's in Ezekiel 38, 39. There, there's no question about that. The latter days have to do with the latter days. Anybody can understand that. It will take place, I believe, after the rapture and before the tribulation. Okay? After the rapture, before the tribulation. And thank you all for asking. Anybody else? Look, I can make the water muddy without trying, so don't, don't, don't let me try if I can clear it up. Everybody good? You stay with me the next night or two, I'll tell you. Okay, I'll tell you. Um, so, so it's going to happen then, I believe. Now, you say, what if you're wrong? Well, everybody else has got an opinion about it. Why shouldn't I? but I think I've got a good biblical opinion. That's one of the handouts that I gave you all. The 10 days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. If you still need a handout now, put your hand back up because Mark's back up here with, with copies. Um, not, only, not only do I believe it will happen after the rapture, before the tribulation, Gog and, and, uh, or Magog and his or Arabic hordes will descend the Word of God says in Ezekiel 38 39, from the north. When you look over in the book of the Revelation, in that second battle of Gog and Magog, all the nations will uh, come against Jerusalem. Not just the Arabic nations, not just the Muslims nations that, that are surrounded. Y'all remember the handout that I, that I gave you? Had that map of all the, all the uh, nations around Israel, that would come against them in the Gog and Magog tank. Y'all remember that? Most of you haven't. Um, so there's a difference in who is going to be involved in that, in that war. Now there is a definite difference, difference, and I highlighted. I spent some time in one of our studies not too long ago sharing with you, I believe there's no less than 12 scriptures in these two chapters as to why God is doing what he is doing in, in manifesting his power 
to protect Israel and to prove the fact in a supernatural way by sending supernatural events that would kill Gog and, and, and the uh, Magog uh, group that would come down from the north on the mountain of Israel in a supernatural way with, with earthquakes, with hail, and with pestilence, and even causing their own soldiers to fight against themselves. Now, over in the book of the Revelation, the second battle of Gog and Magog, God's just going to call fire down from heaven and consume them all at once. Israel's not going to battle in, in chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Ezekiel, but God's going to do the work, and here's why. He's had a purpose so that all, his nation, Israel, and all the nations will recognize him as God. There's nothing said about that over there in the book of Revelation chapter 20. They're going to know he's God because that's going to open up into eternity. The great white throne judgment's going to follow, and then eternity is going to set in after that. Everybody good with that? Okay. Um, you say, well, why, why are they called Gog and Magog? Well, you have to ask God that, but I think I've got a reason. Now, these battles are fought by men who are in rebellion against God. So, maybe God just said, I'll just call them Gog and Magog and just let people remember that mankind, even after he spends a thousand years on planet earth with, with, listen, the knowledge of God covering the earth as the water does the seas, with a king ruling a kingdom in righteousness, where that uh, uh, out of his mouth uh, he rules with a rod of iron in a, perfect, in a perfect place on planet earth just shows how bad, how bad and fallen and rebellious man's heart truly is. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. You have to ask God, but that's just, that's just an idea that I've got. When you get to the end of the Gog and Magog War of Ezekiel 38-39, they'll spend, and that's why the timing of that war we're going into that next, right now after this statement. That's why the timing of this war is so hard to figure out. After that war, all of those people dying, it's going to take them, it's going to take them, what is it, seven years to clean up the land. Right? That's what Ezekiel 39 tells us. Um, or seven months to bury the dead, seven years to burn all of the wood. When it gets to the end of Revelation 20, we're not waiting on, on a king to come and set up his kingdom. The land doesn't need to be purged or purified. God's going to purge it and purify it by fire. Amen. He's not going to need our help. So if you need to hear those again, look at this on Sermon Audio or Facebook, and, and, and you'll have those again. But it is important to understand that, you know, that uh, these are different wars. Okay, if y'all can find evidence that I'm wrong, I am totally open to it. Let's go to the book of uh, Leviticus, chapter 23. 23. Comments, questions, really quick while we're turning. Last week, I believe it was, I, I made mention of a man by the name of, I called him Dr. Spock, but his, his name is Spock, S-P-A-A-K. I looked him up today so I could get this a little... Uh, a little clearer for you. Uh, this Paul 
Henry Spock, S-P-A-A-K, is, is noted for making an amazing statement. And uh, he died in 1972. He was active in the UN. In fact, he was the first president of the UN General Assembly uh, when it was put together. He was actually the first president of the European uh, Parliament. He's one of the architects, at least that's what history refers to him as, uh, one of the architects, chief architects of, of what is known today as the European Union. And uh, the quote that I made reference to just a couple of weeks ago in study, during, during a time of economic chaos and, and problematic times, Spock made this statement. Listen, listen to how amazing it is. Listen to how the world, the, the, the unrighteous and, and the fallen natural man thinks. He said, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. And here's the quote. Send us a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. If that is not a statement of what the world's going to do after the church is raptured, when all of the chaos that sets in after the church is gone, after the light and the salt of this world is gone, I don't know what could be better made up to stay. That, to me, I never will forget when I first heard that, and, and I always can't remember his last name clearly. I didn't, but I'm getting older every day. But to me, that speaks volumes. Now, that was spoken by a man who was president at one time of the General Assembly of the United Nations, which supposedly represents the nations of the world. I don't want anybody like him representing me. Don't want his philosophies or anything as such. The book of Leviticus chapter 3, as I have said on different occasions, I'll continue to say that. It's my contention. It's just my conviction. I love this chapter. It's one of, if not, as I say, the deepest chapter of the Word of God. And you say, why? Well, if you pull out your hand out on, on the feasts of Israel, the seven feasts of Israel, I've explained why that is my contention. It is in this chapter that God sets forth seven feasts for the nation of Israel. These feasts were practical feasts in that the children of Israel celebrated them yearly, or that's when God, as God intended for them to celebrate them. He gave them to, uh, he gave them to the nation of Israel uh, as a ways and means to approach Him and to honor Him and to worship Him. And the study of them is invaluable on a personal level, let alone a collective level like these. You could probably dig deeper in them if you would take time to do a deep dive in them uh, yourself. But not only are they practical, not only do the children of Israel celebrate them, in which six out of the seven they are to rejoice in, have a great time of, of, of joy and fellowship and worship, 
getting together and getting together around the God of Israel. There was only one that they were to mourn uh, during, one that they were to come before God broken, repenting, and that is the day of atonement. Now, these are also prophetical. Not only are they practical in that the children of Israel um, lived them and, and uh, honored them and practiced them, they are prophetical. What do I mean by prophetical? When God set them forth in the Old Testament, gave them to Moses in the, land, in, in the, in the wilderness, before they got into the promised land, you know what God was doing? God was setting forth his prophetic calendar forth, letting, letting the world know what God was going to do. Now, when you begin to look at these, when you begin to look at these uh, feasts, they foretold of what Christ was coming to do to redeem mankind and also make it possible for Jew and Gentile to come together in one body, which is known as the church. But also, he wanted everybody to know what God is still going to do with the nation of Israel. Hey, let, let, me, let me tell you all something. News flash from heaven, God's not done with Israel. I don't care what the Congress and the Senate decides, and they better support them with munitions and money. Say amen. We need to pray that they will. we got a bunch of looney tunes running around on Capitol Hill. Now, that's my opinion. You can get upset or not. I don't really care because I'm upset about them. I mean, to tell you, any, hey, you can't have a country with open borders. And those Chinese coming in, they're not here to hug us around the neck. Do y'all hear me? My Lord. And they all swore to uphold the Constitution. And the number one thing that a political candidate or office holder is to do is to protect us. Y'all do know that, don't you? Okay. I'm just keeping you up to date. So when he gave these, friend, listen, they, they, they're the plan for the nation of Israel and the church and, and, and the church that his son would purchase with his blood. Now, these seven feasts were fixed at two different times of the year. These seven feasts have been broken up into four feasts and three feasts. Follow my logic here. Follow it closely. The first four feasts, which include the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, and the Feast of Pentecost have already been fulfilled. Have they not? Say amen if they have. And listen to what I'm going to tell you. This is important. They have been fulfilled at the same time of the year when the nation of Israel was commanded by God to practice them. The first feast, the Feast of Passover, spoke of Christ, the Lamb of God, being slain for us. What was slain on the night that the children of Israel come out of Egypt? A lamb. The lamb's blood was to be applied to the doorpost and to the lintel, nothing on the threshold. They were to partake of that. They were to eat of that lamb. And you know what? They went out of Egypt. It, it, it's called Passover because every house that had the blood on its doorpost and the lentils when the death angel came through, 
he passed over that household. The firstborn in that household lived. If it didn't have blood, the firstborn of the children, the firstborn of the cattle, the firstborn of anything and everybody in that household died. And there was a great weeping. So just to explain that, immediately following that, they had the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. That speaks of two things to me and more. Look, can, hey, let me stop right here. Let me give you a disclaimer. I don't care what I teach you all, there's always more to be taught. Y'all do know that. I do. Trust me, I know my littleness. But I give you things as I feel like the Holy Spirit would give them to me. That seven-day of unleavened bread feast which seven means completion, that's talking about the fact that you and I need to feed on Christ through our whole Christian journey, and we're also friend to live as pure or as sinless as we can too. The next feast that came was the feast of, of, of the first fruits. To me, this is a remarkable feast. And the reason being what it did, it denoted the beginning of harvest. It denoted the beginning of when the fields that had been sown, whether it be barley, which is the first um, grain that came in, or the wheat later, they were to go out into the fields, they were to gather up stalks of, of that barley, and they were to take, like I said last night in the Bible study, we were here too, they were to take either, either string, rope, or leather, tie a bundle of it together. And can anybody tell me on what day the priest was to go in the field and cut down those sheaves? What day of the week? On, on the Sabbath, Saturday. Whoever said Saturday, it's right. So in essence, listen to this. They broke the law to keep the law. They did that when they circumcised a child. They broke the law to keep the law. Hey, listen, it's God's law. He can allow or command anything he chooses. And then on the morrow after the Sabbath, which would be what day? First day of the week. They were to take that, that, that sheaf that they had gathered and bundled up. The priest was to go before the temple or the tabernacle, and they were just to lift it up, just like somebody had come up out from the dead and wave it before the Lord. On that day, which was the Lord's day, the first day of the week, Jesus came out from among the dead. And the big thing about that is, y'all know, before Jesus arose, how many other people, as far as record goes, in both the Old and the New Testament, do we know that had died and had been revived? Old and New Testament now. All right, now, most of y'all are going to think I'm wrong because you're going to say there's six. Okay? There was three in the Old Testament, most people think. And I'll give you that. I'll start with that, but I'm going to make you think, and I'm going to stick to my guns. There, there was, uh, there was uh, this one to me is the funniest, and I'm having trouble finding the other two, so somebody help me out. Is, is when, after Elijah had died, there was an enemy invading the land, and there was this, you know, funeral going on, possession, and they were trying to take this guy to the cemetery, and, and the enemy was coming on, and they got scared, so they saw Elijah's sepulcher, and they opened that thing up, though that man on there was dead, and when he hit Elijah's bones, he came alive. Elijah had more life in his bones than most people do when they're alive. Isn't that amazing? What were the other two under the Old Testament? Somebody help me. 
Yeah, the little child, Elijah and Elijah, wasn't he great? Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't remember. All right, how about in the New Testament? There was a young maiden. You remember her? Uh, there was Lazarus himself, and there was the uh, widow uh, son of Nain. The, the widow of Nain's son uh, arose. Now, look, here's the big difference between them and Jesus. They ought to die again. You say, what's the seventh one, preacher? That's six. I believe Noah died. Believe that thought of heart. You say, why? He is a picture. He is a sign to the nation of Israel of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. I believe if you read Jonah chapter 2 just right, you won't have any trouble. You won't have any trouble seeing that he probably died. Now, if y'all want to be wrong, believe what you do. And let me go on. I'll get you in a minute, Wendell. Jesus, listen now. We could say that it was seventh, making it complete, but that wouldn't have the emphasis of what I'm going to tell you. What's the number eight mean? Hey, listen, Jesus' resurrection was unlike any other before him. If y'all at least agree to that, say amen. They all had to die again. Jesus was the first. I'm happy right now. Jesus was the first that came out from among the dead never to die again. See, I personally believe, and if you don't, that's okay. A lot of people don't agree with this old preacher, and that's fine, but I believe this all in my heart. There were seven, not six, and Jesus, because he was the eighth, had a better resurrection, and I'm glad. Wendell. If you read that right, Wendell, chapter 27 of the book of Matthew, they didn't come out on the day Jesus died on the cross. There's a special word in there that says, and many of the saints arose, what's the next word, anybody? After his resurrection. They didn't come out on that day. They would have preceded him, and that would have been all wrong. They came out after his resurrection. Three days later, after he got up, many of the saints were seen in the holy city, which is Jerusalem. They all had to die again. They yeah, book of Matthew, chapter 27. Yeah. A lot of people think so. A lot of people think that Enoch is going to be one of the two witnesses we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. They say that Enoch was and Moses or the other because of the miracles they performed. Listen, in the book of Hebrews, listen to what it does say, and then I'll tell you what it does not say. It's appointed unto man once to die. It does not say it's appointed unto every man to die. Does Enoch have to come back and die? You know, Elijah, he was taken up in a whirlwind, so I doubt it, but God knows, and I'll defer to him, and we'll ask Enoch how it went for him when we get there. How about that? So, Everybody good? Yes. I don't have any problem with that. And now, the Feast of First Fruit was also a, a testimony that there's more to come. Aren't y'all glad? Let me give you a verse to go along with that. Jesus said, because I live. See, that ought to make y'all happy. I mean, let's face it, folks. Now, we're almost done with the time, but I can get this in. These first four feasts took place in the exact time of the year that they were celebrated. 
The last one is the Feast of Pentecost. If you turn and don't, not right now, just quote it, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, you know what that means? It was fulfilled. I hate to tell this to the Charismatics and the Pentecostals and, and, and even any other preacher that thinks there's going to be another Pentecost type happening at the end of the church age. I don't see it. Joel's not going to be fulfilled during the church age. It's going to be fulfilled in the next age. Y'all didn't like that, did you? But that's all right. The church is going to end in apostasy, not in a worldwide revival. Would to God that would happen. Would to God that would happen. But not according to uh, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, 2 Peter and Jude. Not going to happen. Look at the book of Revelation, chapter 3, beginning about verse 14, and look at the church of the Laodicean. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. How sad that is now. Can we have revival? Yes, we can. Can you have revival? Yes, you can. Is God still blessing? Will God still move among his people? Yes, he will. Now, between these first four and the last three feasts, there's a period of time, three to five months, how many months? Somebody tell me really quick. Three, four, five months? We'll just leave it at that until somebody counts them really quick. Then in September or October, the, the last three sets of feasts pick up again. The first three started in, in March or April, in the spring of the year. The Passover denoted a new beginning spiritually. These last three feasts happen in the fall, either in September or October, depending on the year, and they denote a civil year new beginning. The first one was the Feast of the Trumpets. What are we listening for? Okay. Immediately following that, 10 days later, is the Day of Atonement. And that's what we're going to focus on. Five days following that, is the Feast of the Tabernacles, which typifies or speaks of God dwelling among His people, where they'll be His people and He'll be their God. Now listen, why? Here's my question. Listen to my logic, and I've been giving it to you and laying logic on the line. Why would I not believe, since God has already proven how He's going to fulfill the first four feasts at the exact same time of the year, that they were celebrating it, why wouldn't I believe that he's going to do the same with the last three? Somebody answer me that. I believe he will. Now here's where I was called up for years. I used to think long ago, I've not thought this for many years, but I'm not as young in the Lord as I used to be either. I used to think that whatever day the rapture would take place, that immediately the uh, tribulation would have its onset. I don't believe that anymore. I believe that there will be a period of time between the church being snatched away and the onset of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week of prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled. And I believe because, listen now, the Day of Atonement, the second of the fall feasts, happens 10 days after the Feast of the Trumpets. Now those 10 days 
I'm going to show you, could speak of 10 years. Am I right? I don't know, but it excites the life out of me. Excites the life out of me. Read my handout, get your questions, come back next week, and let's talk about this just a little bit and see what we will learn. Any questions real quick before we go?